Welcome to Spirit Behind the Screen. Each episode, your host, Marty McCurdy, deep dives on industry trends around high reliability electronics and the supply chain in aerospace and defense. This is episode 25, with more about hemp protection standards and implementation from Polyphaser and Transtector. Hi, I'm Marty McCurdy with Spirit Electronics with our podcast Behind the Screen. And today for our round two, we have Adam Perone and Dan Rebeck with us again from uh, the holding company Infinite, but really it's Polyphaser and Transtector is the brands that we're talking to today uh, that is one of Spirit's suppliers. So gentlemen, welcome again to the show. Thank you, Marty. It's great to be here. Excellent. Well, we have so much to cover. I, I don't know if we'll get it all done in round two or not, uh, because we we're always talking about the applications and the and the customer base and where the industry is going, et cetera. So if you're ready, I'd like to jump in and maybe start out uh, our second phase of this conversation with, you know, who are targeted audiences? Because the targeted audience, I believe we we've all bantered around about it really is that, you know, the majority of the the people out there, just your average Joe, if you will, knows about EMP from, you know, Mission Impossible or 007, you know, some spy movie or whatever. But the reality of it is it's definitely here to stay. And it's also something that needs addressed. So when we look at our customer base of aerospace and defense, what kind of exact departments are we talking about? Is it engineering or, or facilities or both or a combination of that? Or, you know, who really is the targeted listener for today's podcast? The target we really have would be the program managers, directors of operation, also those who really deal with risk mitigation, whether it's a facility, whether it's an aircraft. The thing about electricity, it's everywhere on the battlefield. So especially with the appreciation we've seen growing with hemp EMP hardening, anywhere on the battlefield where you have electricity, you're going to have a problem with surge and hemp EMP. So every day breeds a, a really interesting conversation because it's never one platform you're, you're working on. Anywhere where power is on the battlefield, we're supporting. Great. Yeah, I, I think that just from being in the military myself, I think one of the the most challenging things that it always comes down to the simple, you know, the simple thing that is the deal breaker, right? It's always about communication. If you cannot communicate with the team on the ground or the team in the air, or, or you know, just the strategy, where's the airstrike, all these things, communication is key. So basically we have, you know, ground base stations, we've got troops with radio packs and things like that. So do you see the application applying to that as well? Well, my experience, I served in the Marine Corps 2008, stationed Ali Ambar. So I, I know the need to have your communication, to have your power, to have your systems up and running. Especially Marines were always put up there in the forefront, forward deployed between the target and a base, you know, and without having the ability to communicate back or have the, the power to get your team back, you can leave a bunch of Marines or soldiers or, or allies down there to die. So uh, for us, you know, it's really a personal thing to ensure mission operation continuity with our solutions, like I said before, it, it's everywhere on the battlefield. It's it's not just a, a SATCOM uplink. It's not just a military vehicle. There's you know so many different applications. And the one thing I've enjoyed here is with Transsector and Polyphaser, our engineers have, have touched all different types of technologies across the military. So they bring that expertise when providing a solution. 
Yeah, I like to hear it. Uh, we have, I think, eight vets here at Spirit. So yeah, there's uh, we've got the Marines covered here as well. They're always the hoorahs here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so great. I think that's a, a good touch on you know who the targeted audience is, but I think it's just a touch, right? I think it's broad, and we're certainly out here trying to communicate. You know, just it's. I think it's an educational approach for Spirit at this point. So I appreciate the depth of knowledge you both have. And just speaking about the, you know, like the four pillars of, of what the hemp system consists of, if you could touch on that, I think we spoke uh, in the first section, and I'd like to just touch on it again, and then maybe dive into those four pillars of uh, hemp system so that our listeners can get a, a firm grip on these four items. Certainly, certainly. Yeah, I think in part one, we we really set the the table for what is an HEMP event, you know, and basically what we boiled it down to is it's almost like taking a big bucket of water and just throwing it over your facility, right? So uh, hemp is different from lightning in that it's got higher frequency components and it's also got that triple threat, as we call it, of three different synchronous events that happen. So everything that you would do for EMP mitigation, you would also do for lightning. And this four pillar concept really applies to lightning and EMP, but the quality and or the integrity of those pillars just needs to be stronger in order to be able to stand up to that different type of event that hemp brings. So I'm going to talk about the uh, the four pillars concept again and talk about what can we actually do to implement EMP protection with each one of those facets. And I'm also going to throw another one in there, which is backup power. So oh, we've great. About, yeah, we've talked about the fact that no matter what kind of local protection or hardening you have at a site, there's a very good chance that the power grid could go down for some period of time. So having a backup power system can help ride through that essentially. But let's go back to the four pillars concept first. So, right. so those four pillars that we talked about last time are shielding, grounding, filtering, and surge protection. So let's take each one of them. And I'm going to start with surge protection because it's a very near and dear topic to my heart. So surge protection is the one element in the system that actually changes state during the event. All right. So your filtering and your grounding and your shielding are all just kind of inherent things that you can build into the system. But the surge protector actually reacts, responds and changes when it sees an overvoltage come down the line, whether that be lightning or EMP. It essentially acts like a voltage controlled switch. It creates another conductive path that looks much more favorable for the transient to flow through and almost kind of just routes it away from the front door of the equipment. So when you have that over voltage, the protector changes state and it tries to basically shunt is the electrical term as much of the energy away from the system and the equipment as it can. So EMP rated surge protection, a little bit different than standard lightning protection because you have to be able to respond to that early time pulse that is rising up in only uh, five to 20 nanoseconds versus microseconds for lightning. So you're talking about three orders of magnitude. Uh, so those are some of the technologies that Transtector and Polyphaser has really specialized in is creating surge protectors that have extremely fast response times and then have very low impedance shunt paths into the grounding system when they activate. And different levels of performance can bring different levels of let through energy and let through voltage to the equipment. And that in the long run is what typically damages or degrades equipment is when that energy is getting past the protector. So those are the two things that you look for when you're selecting a surge protector is not just how much energy can it handle, 
but how much energy is it letting through when that transient event occurs? Great. Dan, is there a spec on the speed? Because I can imagine, I mean, a lightning strike that, you know, scares everybody. I mean, it's so fast, it's over before it happens that your mind registers. Is the extremely fast response, is there a, a spec out there that we can put out there to the team? The transtector silicon avalanche diode technology protectors respond in, in one nanosecond or less. But I would often put response time as, as a secondary metric. Really what I want to see is an actual test waveform, a test result from the product. Because from a specsmanship point of view, sometimes the response time of just the protection component will be put forth. Sometimes there's no real you know, basis for that claim to begin with. The proof is in the pudding to me. I want to see it hit with that 20 by 500 nanosecond waveform and actually see what residual uh, energy comes out on that, on that secondary port. Yeah, very nice. Good to know. So from surge protection, does grounding come next or shielding become the next big piece? Um, let's go with shielding. Because of that, you know, that concept of the whole bucket of water going over the building, you know, that means you're going to have some holes somewhere, right? And the best thing you can do in an existing site is try to fill those holes as much as possible. You know, in most cases, you're not building something new from the ground up. And if you are, you know, you are likely not going to have a budget to get a 30 dB master shield in your building. So what can you do if you're faced with that practical situation? And there are some things you can do. A lot of times buildings will have metal in the terms of equipment racks, in roof panels, even in decorative items that can be bonded into the grounding system. And the more pieces of metal that you can bond together, the bigger you can make that object look from the sky, the better shielding you're going to have. So that kind of naturally brings us to grounding. Grounding has a whole encyclopedia behind it as well. But some of the, the main tenets for a good grounding system are, first off, you have two types of conductors. You have the grounded conductor and the grounding conductors. So the grounded conductor is actually the ground wire itself that is connected into the earth and for AC systems, you generally only want to bond your neutral and your ground at one point, and that's in your main entrance panel. And that goes a long way towards preventing really large lightning and EMP voltages from building up across the grounding system and actually causing the grounding system to equalize with itself, which can be a really ugly situation. So you want to have as much metal under the ground as you can have. You want to have as much metal above ground as you can have. And then you just want to have that one single point connection between your neutral ground at your AC input. And there's some different rules for other types of systems like uh, twisted pair and so forth. But that's really the, the first and foremost thing that I look for in a system. Now, one thing that, you know, I just uh, got a question about this last week, which is kind of interesting. Not everyone is aware that there's a huge amount of difference in the actual conductivity of the earth. So when you have uh, sandy or rocky soil, you actually can have large impedances in the ground, right? The earth is not a big piece of metal. So it gets its conductivity in the soil through minerals and moisture content and so forth. And there can be a huge variation there. So there are methods that can be used. Um, there's actually a methodology called a three-point ground impedance test meter. And you put these stakes in the ground and kind of geometrically space them out. And you can actually measure the impedance of the earth. So the, uh, the NEC code just provides some guidelines in that area. Ideally, you want to have about a 5-ohm impedance into the, into the actual earth. When it gets up to be about 25 ohms, I believe they start to call that objectionable. 
and then you can look at ways to remediate the conductivity around your system. You can drive more ground rods underground to create more metal underground. They have some really uh, kind of fancy, they almost look like a carpet or a rug. So you just kind of, if you don't, if, if you're really rocky soil and you have a hard time banging a lot of ground bars down into it, you can dig yourself a little hole and just throw this big piece of fabric, mesh fabric in that can decrease the impedance as well. But you can start to kind of visualize how all this is working together now, right? That little surge protector wants to turn on. And even if it has a really low impedance shunt path, within itself, if it's trying to feed that current into a high impedance in the ground, then it's not going to be as successful as it could be. So that I think is probably the highlights on grounding. And so for filtering, the filtering is useful for when the energy is conducted onto the lines, whether it be power or data, and that rise time is really, really fast. So even though the suppressor, the EMP rated suppressor is going to respond to it, if you can put a little filtering ahead of the protector, it can help to kind of stretch that waveform out and almost let the protector reach out and get its arms around it a little better. Now, the challenge with filtering is that filters are series devices. So if I want to put a filter in my 1200 amp site on my main entrance panel, that means I have to have a filter that can pass 1200 amps continuously. And that can be an extremely large, heavy, likely not enough room. So that can be the challenge. So one of the things that we recommend, if that's not possible, is to do something as simple as installing what's called a ferrite bead around those power conductors. So I see Marty nodding her head. Um, <laughs> you know, you've seen a few ferrite beads in your career. They're almost like little band-aids. They're basically just composite iron, very magnetic oriented material that doesn't like current changing quickly passing through it. And so it, it can actually do some really good filtering just by putting something as simple as a, as a one inch device around the power cable. Great, Dan, that sounds awesome, the four pillars, but let's talk about that fifth pillar that you've added, the, the backup power. Obviously, you know, we all charge everything, our cars, our phones, all that, but you know, what kind of backup power are we talking about? Yeah, so there's a few different levels. That kind of depends on how much backup time that you really want or think that you need for your system or your equipment. One interesting thing is that we've all survived power outages for several hours and that's okay. So it's acceptable for a lot of systems to be able to take several hours to respond. Uh, but in that meantime, what can you do to keep things energized? Start with just a simple UPS. So a UPS is going to have a battery that's charged up. That's then going to feed an inverter if power is lost from the grid. Now you can get some high quality UPSs that can give you uh, two to four hours of backup power for office equipment grade type stuff all the way up to some higher power. Uh, there's some quite large UPSs out there. The next step would be to go up to a standby generator. There's uh, home and commercial versions of standby generators. I actually see a lot of marketing from Generac lately. They're, they're probably the best in the business. So I always recommend them. Those systems can run off of liquid propane, which you can obviously have encapsulated at your site, or it can run off of natural gas. So hopefully the natural gas network doesn't go down as well, which makes the propane kind of a nice option since it's, it's self-contained. And then there's also kind of talking about emerging, there's some, there's some technologies emerging that are all centered around the word microgrid. I mean, those are very interesting. Those are, those, we're keeping our eyes on those as well. And it's basically a combination of energy storage device along with energy generation devices from solar to wind to the liquid propane, but kind of like a all-encompassing power system that can provide a lot more duration. So 
that's definitely something that we're investigating more on our side. But those are some of the options that I would recommend as kind of the basic steps to take. Yeah, that sounds great. Certainly Spirit's home here in Arizona. We have a lot of sunshine for solar. So it's uh, now that we got our building up and running, it's going to be one of our next investments. So yeah, good info. I think last time on our phase one of the podcast, I think I was telling you that we upgraded the electrical here at Spirit to a 3000 amp service. So all of this is resonating. And as you're talking, I'm seeing the bills that I paid to have some of this stuff installed, right? But we definitely did overkill on our grounding. We've got, you know, in a very contained area, we've got multiple grounding rods in and, and things like that. So yeah, you're speaking our language for sure. I appreciate that. I think some of the things, especially in our community involving these four pillars is also, you know, we've got some very specific mill specs in our world as you have and we have that we deal with. So some of the mill standards that you support, I know that you've got mill standard, I think it's 118-125. And there's some other ones out there. Is there some that are more important than others that you're always leaning on? Like we, at the component level, we're always at mill standard 883. So is there one in particular that we lean on most in the hemp? I think mill standard 18125 is really the pinnacle of global EMP standards. So the only thing is, is it's really only applicable to C4I facilities. Kind of the rub is that while it provides the best test methodologies, you know, the most robust test schedule for EMP, it's used more as a guideline in most cases than a binding standard. So we generally only see mill standard 18125 flowdowns come through for the top of the top strategic programs. But we almost always test our products to mill standard 18125 because it gives that level playing field of always using the same methods with the same specialized labs and being able to compare the results apples to apples between one protector and another. But as we go down one step from mill standard 18125, I would say that the standards that we most often see float down in the military sector are mill standard 461 and 464. They're very similar specs. 461 is kind of like the uh, subsystem equipment level spec. 464 is the kind of macro level. So let's say you've got a missile launching system. Mill standard 464 would apply to the launching vehicle, the radar vehicle whereas mill standard 461 would apply to the electronics that are going inside of those systems. So the big difference between the 461, 464 and mill standard 18125 is that the 461 and 464 standards are qualitative in nature. You'll do some pre-testing with your protection to understand what your residuals look like, but once you get into the actual validation test, you're illuminating the actual test object and you're making sure that it can sustain its mission critical functionality. So with a command and control, obviously you wanna make sure it can still command and control everything that it needs to after being illuminated. So the one thing that I really wanna point out is that what kind of gives us a stepping stone towards the DHS guideline for the commercial infrastructure. And what I'm seeing more and more often is people are really understanding that this is a qualitative situation in terms of hardening critical infrastructure and even most of our military assets. That's the way that we balance the budget and the performance and everything else. And so the DHS guidelines for critical infrastructure are also qualitative in nature. Do these things and you can have a reasonable expectation that your system can survive and recover within a certain amount of time. 
We're very much in an emerging market, as you mentioned on the commercial side. I think the military understands this very, very well. You know, we have since uh, the years following Starfish Prime in, in the 60s, but it's really the education piece on the infrastructure side that will have the most impact on, you know, really improving the overall hardness of our entire nation. Very good. Yeah, we have, I have another comment on that, Dan, but we have a question coming in here from a listener. So how do you manage this? We talked about the grounding. How do we manage this on a possibly a aircraft carrier or something that doesn't have a ground, you know, I guess maybe mentally grounded, right? Because you're in the water floating. Uh, is this still a, an electrical ground to, you know, the ship's hull or how does that work? Yeah, yeah. Ground is always a reference, you know, and ground is only really ground in a textbook. So yeah, in a shipboard scenario, you may well have some of your shunt currents actually flowing through the shell of the ship. However, when you step back and think about it, that's an extremely conductive surface. So that's okay because you're not building up any voltages in any two points along the hull where you could create enough of a voltage to arc over and harm a person. So you're always thinking about both lightning and EMP in general, either the whole system is going to go up in potential with respect to the ground, or it's going to go down with respect to the ground. And so there's always just looking in the system where those voltages are going to occur and then make sure that they have a, a place to go, either through a surge protector or some other means. Excellent. Yeah, great. Thank you. Well, I wanted to come back around to the standards. I think this same thing applies to, you know, we're at component level on all of these devices. I think that the real question is, is that you say they use them as a guideline. And I think that all of our customer base comes back to us and says, okay, we're referencing this mill standard, but for our application, we want to be very, what I call application specific use, right? So how are they going to use it? And then they modify their own source control drawing to accommodate that change. So is that what you also see when you put some of these systems together for people? There's always going to be trade-offs. And so what you really want to do is if you're hardening the site, you want to understand where all the power and calm and any copper you know, wire that's coming into the system, you really want to treat it with some type of protection. It's not too difficult to have um, you know, a consultant come and take a look at your ground impedance in your soil, make sure that your AC system meets NEC code. You know, a lot of very straightforward things you can do, but the difficult thing to do is that validation testing. That's where the cost really comes in. And that's kind of where the trade-off comes in with the DHS guideline to roll up a truck and, and actually do pulse current injection testing on site and do shielding effectiveness testing with a very elaborate antenna setup. Every single strategic military structure goes through those tests, but it's pretty impractical for uh, some of the, the commercial infrastructure and so forth. So that's kind of the trade-off, right? Here are the things, and, and I really encourage your listeners to take a look at that DHS guidelines document. Maybe we can put a link up. Very well written. Like I say, I think it's very pragmatic, it's a very easy read, and a lot of great concepts in there that I'm sure I'm skipping over. Yep, I think we have it. I know it's part of your new military brochure, so I appreciate that. The testing is always a challenge, right? It's like testing the fire sprinkler system. <laughs> you might get yeah. a little wet. <laughs> you might get a little wet. <laughs> so, um, let's talk a little bit about maybe outside of you know what our comfort zone is. Obviously, you know Adam, you and I are comfortable with the mill aerospace because we've been in it. We understand it, and I know Dan. You know, you guys are always talking that. Obviously, Spirit is. I would say 99.9% .9 of our customers are aerospace and defense. We always have some 
wild gamer that comes in and needs some support for his old pinball machine kind of stuff. But um, let's talk about, you know, maybe a little bit outside of the norm, right? So in my mind, speaking of like the, the all inclusive is, you know, SpaceX and Elon Musk, and he's got solar and he's got cars and he's got rockets going up. I mean, for me, this guy could look at this whole infrastructure of, of hemp and go, oh yeah, I need it everywhere. So, you know, when I think about that, I think about our server farms that are out there, commercial air. I mean, we've all been in an airport when the system goes down, you just might as well grab a pillow and a couch, right? Because nothing's coming back up. So some of the things that make our life comfortable and productive I think those are the biggest ones. I mean, you talk about a power outage, obviously I'm from middle of Pennsylvania where the Amish are, so it's no big deal, but uh, (laughs) they can't handle it differently. But for all of the things that keep our infrastructure going, like what we talked about of the engineers, and for me, like you mentioned agriculture, I believe in our part one, and like the Army Corps of Engineers for our dams and lakes and, and water sources and all these things. When we look at that outside of, the standard aerospace and defense market, or even into our Department of Energy nuclear market, this is like a absolutely a, a key piece of their everyday conversation. Yeah, and it's um, you know, that's really the emerging part of the market. It's going to be a combination of federal action. You know, there are a number of federal initiatives going on to study and eventually work towards recommendations for mitigations, but you know, those are moving at a pace, but not as fast as we'd like to see them. So the other part is really the education, you know, like what we're doing. And, and I love the, the example of agriculture because it just helps people. We live a certain quality of life and we think about our power grid and everything else. But, you know, we also like to have food on our tables. And and back to who would you contact while well, at an agriculture farm, you know, it's likely going to be the farmer himself, whoever's responsible for that productivity. I will say that, uh, you know, since 2001, the U.S. has been in a position of counterinsurgency. Our focus was Al-Qaeda, it was ISIS, Boko Haram, and, and a host of other terrorist groups. I'm sure there's plenty. There's more than I can list. Obviously, in the past five years, hemp isn't a new thing. It's been out since it was, you know, Starfish Prime. This has been around since the 60s, and it's always been a can that, you know, the problem has been kicked down the road. Only under, you know, President Trump and now the Biden administration, which has continued that EMP executive order, you know, now it's finally getting attention. That's why it's become an emerging market. The U.S. has returned to a more typical geopolitical climate, you know, that we saw during communism. Uh, Now we have Russia, China, that openly boasts about having EMP weaponry and capabilities to leverage the playing field. Even countries like Iran and North Korea are both looking for ways to get rid of the U.S.'s uh, technological advantage. So it's definitely become a threat. It's become the emerging market. And it's just because of what we're going through in the world today. Obviously, there's no shortage of chaos out there. Yeah, that's right. Adam, I think I was discussing with my team earlier for me and the excitement for spirit to kind of dive into this thing deep with you guys and kind of come up with a full solution of integrating this into, you know, either military bases or buildings or boats or airplanes or whatever the application might surface for us is because I see it as an emerging solution as you do. So in my mind, 
years ago, we had this counterfeit issue and everybody was, you know, worrying about the counterfeit because the Chinese basically were counterfeiting everything that they could possibly get their hands on. And there's some great video out there by a gentleman called Tom Sharp, who did some of the initial work on counterfeiting. He's basically got a, a camera on the back of a scooter going down an alley in China. And you just see these piles of electronics that are getting stripped from boards, washed in the river. And, you know, somehow they're going to miraculously be new and be sold again. So uh, we carry Xilinx uh, as one of our major product lines, and that is the largest, most counterfeited product in the world, probably because they lead the market in the FPGA business. And I see that the industry as a whole got counterfeit under control by a lot of support and mandate and oversight from you know a lot of committees and things. And then what I saw come next was the CMMC, so the cybersecurity issues, right? So five, six years ago, it's, you know, everybody was getting hacked and we didn't know what to do with it. And is it a hack or not? And the hackers are so sophisticated now, I can't even tell if it's you know real or not real. They look so good. And so then our industry, our aerospace and defense took on the CMMC issue to a degree now that it's you know become very heavy lifting, massive, more than original cybersecurity documents and, and audits and things like that. And this is exactly where I think the transition to hemp is coming, right? So I think that now that CMMC is becoming in its prime and everybody's has to be compliant and get on board and all that, I think in two years, hemp is going to be exactly in the same forefront story of, you know, what you need to do to be in business these days. That's kind of what I, you know, in my team and our discussions, that's what we're thinking. I will say one of the most alarming facts that I have is that over 99% of the power used by the U.S. military is drawn from the civilian grid. So you think about our homeland defenses having the ability to stop an invading force or provide a counterattack. I mean, those those are the capabilities that we lose once you lose that power. So, I mean, that's definitely something that keeps me up at night for sure. Yeah, for sure. One of our biggest customers is a, a DOE contractor and deals with our nuclear facilities. So I know for sure that they have some interests in all of these things as well. So, uh, gentlemen, I know your time is precious. I could go on and on. I think this is a, a great conversation and a great topic. Is there any last comments you would like to make on today's podcast? No, it's uh, great to be with you again. And I think we've got a lot more education to do. So let's do it again. Keep educating our audience. That sounds great. I think we do have enough material, certainly for us to, to have another episode uh, follow up as part three. So Adam and Dan both, I appreciate your time today. And thanks for joining Spirit's podcast behind the screen. Thank you, Marty. Thanks for having us, Marty. Thanks for listening with Spirit this week. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast to let us know what you want to hear about in aerospace and defense. You can find out more about Spirit's value-added services and product lines at spiritelectronics.com.